If you're looking at belief in Jesus or being a Christian as some possible way to escape anything bad happening in this present life, I have it on good authority that you'll be disappointed. Living a moral life in which we love one another comes with its own inherent rewards. It can solve many problems when, like the Master wants us to, we stop living abusive and self-centered lives. But the life of an elective God member of the Ecclesia is not about our life here and now. It's about the there and then of our future. We can compare this life to many temporary situations in which something better awaits us, like attending school. Although some may, typically we don't go to school with the intention of attending it all of our lives. We go knowing the struggles we're going through, the tests we're taking, subjecting ourselves to the whims of our instructors, the studying, the being broke and dependent on others, is temporary, but necessary to prepare ourselves for something hopefully much better to come. Sure, like our lives, we may enjoy school along the way and do what we need to do to survive, but school was never intended to be the end goal. Life is so short and so fragile. What we've been told about what is to come is the end goal of those who belong to Jesus. This is sometimes called our blessed hope. It's surprising how little Christians know about that hope and what awaits us in the age to come. But it's glorious. Sitting on a cloud, strumming a harp, sounds to me like it'd get a little bit boring pretty quickly. Of course, depending on who else is in the band. But that's not even close to what we're told about the age to come will be like. Yes, that might get old quickly. But being resurrected in some sort of immortal, unaging, superhuman body with Jedi Knight-like capabilities and being deputized by King Jesus to govern with him in his kingdom, which will cover this entire planet. Yes, this same planet we live on now, and it'll still be inhabited with mortal human beings for at least a thousand years. Well, that sounds challenging and exciting. We're going to look at everything differently. And that's just the start. But before all that, of course, there's a few things in the here and now. A few things that Jesus wanted to warn us about. Obstacles that we need to navigate before we move on. For those who are still alive during the time just preceding his return, one of those obstacles is a time of great persecution directed at those who follow Jesus. As a way of review, I'm going to read to you from my special compilation translation of the Olivet Discourse. It combines all three gospel accounts into one. This will roughly be from Matthew verse 24 uh, up through verse 10. That's about where we left off last time. Jesus answered, saying, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And the time is close at hand, and will deceive many. Do not follow them. But when you will hear of wars, rumors of wars, and disturbances, don't be terrified or troubled. These things must happen, but it is not the end. Then he said to them, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be mighty earthquakes in places and hunger, and pestilence, and fearful sights, and wonders in the sky. They will be exceedingly great, but only be the beginning of childbirth-like pain. Now, 
Before all of these things, watch out for yourselves, for they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, betraying you and delivering you to the councils and assemblies on my behalf to testify against them, and taken to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers, and you'll be hated by everyone and beaten for my name's sake. Those are some pretty serious words. So according to all three gospel accounts, that's what Jesus has told his disciples so far. Now let's move on. This is Mark chapter 13, verse 11. But when they take you and deliver you over to the custody of others, don't take any thought beforehand about what to say, but speak whatever you are given at the time, because it is not you that speaks, but the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 13 to 15, put it this way, And it will come down to your testimony on my behalf. Therefore, purpose beforehand not to premeditate what defense you make. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom that all of your adversaries won't be able to reply to or oppose. You might notice that I skipped Mark uh, chapter 13, verse 10. We'll discuss that verse later. It fits in with the other Gospels a little later. Both Mark and Luke record instructions from Jesus regarding what to do in case you're taken into captivity for his namesake. Although Matthew chapter 24 does not contain that in, a parallel, in the parallel passage, the book of Matthew is not silent on these same instructions. They're found elsewhere. This passage is almost identical to the passage found in Matthew chapter 10 verses 16 to 22 where Jesus was preparing to send out his 12 disciples on a mission. I'm going to read that passage here. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 to 22. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you will speak. For it will be given you in that same hour when you will speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of the Father which speaks in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end will be saved. You're going to see those same words here in just a little while. Well, these instructions were given to Jesus' disciples as they were sent out during Jesus' day. The similar instructions in the Olivet Discourse differ in that they were intended for not only the disciples' time, but also for the end of time when Jesus would not physically be present here on earth. We know this because of the context of the statements in the Olivet Discourse, and they relate to his coming and the end of the age. However, the Matthew 10 passage again illustrates that persecution, because of the name of Jesus, has been around as long as he has. The same instructions are recorded yet another time in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. And you can read those on your own if you like. 
Only a couple days after he delivered his message on the Mount of Olives, you know, this Olivet Discourse that we're talking about, Jesus put his own instructions into action as he stood before the chief priests after he had been taken captive. This captivity, of course, ended in his death on the cross. Now, I've been taught over the years via various Christian sources that it's God's wish that we are comfortable and healthy and that we are to rely on the Holy Spirit in times such as the above scripture mentions in order to allow the Holy Spirit to rescue us. God may certainly choose to rescue a follower of Jesus for his holy purposes. However, to those that believe that the instructions of Jesus are some sort of a technique designed to get you off the hook, by way of the Holy Spirit giving you words of wisdom to utter, please remember how this technique worked out for the Messiah himself. Jesus was beaten and put to death on a Roman cross. You can read about his court testimony in Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 to 68. It's clear that the purpose of the Holy Spirit giving us the words to say is not necessarily intended to save ourselves from harm. Rather, the intervention of the Holy Spirit will provide followers of Christ who are being persecuted the wisdom and words to enable them to give their testimony on behalf of Jesus to those who are doing the persecuting. Now let's move on. This is Mark chapter 13, verses 12 to the first part of 13. Now brother will betray brother to death, and the father his son, and children will rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death and you will be detested by everyone on account of my name. This is the Luke 21 version found in verses 16 to 17. And you will be betrayed both by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will cause some of you to be put to death, and you will be detested by everyone on account of my name. In the Matthew 10 passage I read to you just a little while ago, Jesus sends out his disciples to do his work and warns them that they'll be betrayed. We find this theme again repeated in Luke chapter 12, when Jesus points out that his first coming 2,000 years ago would not result in unity between all, but rather a division. I'm going to read you that uh, scripture in Luke chapter 12. This is verses 51 to 53. Suppose you that I come to give peace on the earth? I tell you, no but rather division. For from now on there shall be five in one household divided, three against two, two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father, the mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother, the mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Once again, that's Luke chapter 12, verses 51 to 53. And hopefully that doesn't sound just like another Thanksgiving with the family. Persecution of Jesus' followers, division because of him, and adversity was foretold by Jesus and is as old as Christianity itself. It's not unique to what will occur during the end of the age. Yet, it is important to realize that it will take place right up until the end of the age. Don't ever look for the church, now or somewhere around the 45,000 denominations strong, to become unified and all on the same page. Listen to the following passage from the book of Revelation. It records a scene the Apostle John witnessed unfolding in heaven. God the Father is seated on the throne. Before the throne, there is an altar. As the Apostle John recalls his vision, 
Jesus has been found to be the only one qualified to take a scroll from the hand of God and loose its seven seals. The scroll, once completely unsealed, will reveal the will of God in the form of what's called the day of the Lord and the judgments that come with it. They're going to be poured out on the earth. As Jesus breaks each seal, things happen. And this is from Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And when he, Jesus, had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest for yet a little season, until their fellow servants also, and their brothers that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. The fifth seal of this heavenly scroll is broken, and what or who do we see? We see martyred servants before the throne of God in heaven. They've been killed because of the testimony they maintained regarding their master, Jesus. They're told that they need to be patient until a number more of their brothers would also be killed in the same manner prior to God avenging their blood. These disembodied souls were in the very presence of God, making their request known. The answer they were given is that God would not take action based on their request. It was instead the will of God that more of their fellow servants be slain because of their testimony. Why are brothers betraying brothers, even when it means their own family members will be put to death? In the coming verses of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus will introduce the character of the Antichrist. By comparing Scripture with Scripture, we start to put together a picture in which we see the Antichrist being the driving force behind such persecution and betrayal. The Antichrist will provide very strong external motivation for betraying followers of Christ. They will betray them in order to save their own lives and perhaps the lives of their loved ones. Both Mark and Luke record that this hatred-driven persecution is directed specifically at those who keep God's commandments, the Jews, and those that bear the name of Jesus, Christians. The future persecution of the church will be vast. It'll be extremely difficult to be a Christian. We've talked about persecution of Christians, but here we're talking about a specific time when there will be a great falling away from the faith. Many have fallen away from the faith in the past as a result of persecution. Many have fallen away because the seeds of salvation that were planted with them never took root. However, this future occurrence of leaving the Christian faith will apparently occur on a scale large enough to be recognizable. So much so that both Jesus and Paul use it as a sign, what I call a hard sign, of the approaching end of the age. Matthew will continue on with this theme. This is Matthew chapter 24, verse 10. And at that time many will fall away, and shall betray one another, and hate one another. Persecution is nothing new to the church. And like earthquakes, wars, and disease, 
persecution of the church alone should not be taken as a sign of the end of the age. However, it is at this point in the Olivet Discourse that it appears that Jesus is changing his focus on things that will be unique to the period of his second coming. And the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about, the, quote, falling away, unquote, from the faith appears to be a noteworthy occurrence associated with persecution and the end of the age. The Greek word that Matthew used to record what Jesus said, which is probably spoken originally in Aramaic, is scandalizo. That's the Greek word, scandalizo. We get our word scandal from it. In the original language, one of the ways the word was used is, quote, to offend, shock, excite a feeling of repugnance, unquote. It can also mean to, quote, be enticed to sin, unquote, or to, quote, falter or fall away, unquote. It can mean causing a person to distrust someone or something that they should trust, This interpretation is the way the word was used in Jesus' parable of the seeds and the sower in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells us a story about a person who scattered some seed, and then he tells us what happened to the seeds. I'm going to read that to you. Matthew 13, verses 3 to 6. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places, where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Well, a little while later, Jesus defined what the story of the seeds and the sower meant. In regards to the seeds that fell on the rocky soil, he said the following, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Falls away is from the Greek word, skandalizo. Now that was Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. Interpreting the Greek word skandalizo to mean fall away in light of the context of persecution found in the Olivet Discourse immediately surrounding this word and the use of the word in the parable of the sower makes perfect sense. Some people fall away from the faith after suffering tribulation and persecution, just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13 and Matthew chapter 24. Although Matthew is the only author that documented this particular statement regarding falling away in the Olivet Discourse, it's not the only place we read about falling away from the faith in regards to the second coming of Jesus. The Apostle Paul's correspondence to the believers in Thessalonica about the second coming of Jesus utilizes the future falling away from the faith as a sign. It's my opinion that Paul is basing his prediction about the falling away on Jesus' own prophetic words contained in the Olivet Discourse. Hear the words of Paul now from 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 5. Now, 
Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Once again, that's from the book of Second Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Well, the English Standard Version of the Bible and several other versions translate the Greek word, apostasia, as the English word rebellion. Other translations, such as the American Standard Version and King James Version, translate it as falling away. Still others, such as the New American Standard Version, translate the word as apostasy. The word means to defect from the truth, to fall away, or forsake. The only other time the Greek word apostasia is used in the New Testament is in Acts 21, 21. There it's translated as forsake. It's used there referencing the forsaking of beliefs. Remember the meaning of the Greek word skandalizo includes distrusting that which should be trusted or to forsake or fall away from something. A wrong interpretation of this or any other word brings to mind wrong images. The word rebellion, for example, like the uh, ESV uses, in our time may either bring to mind anything from some sort of paramilitary uprising to teenagers experiencing another round of hormone-driven differences of opinions with their parents. The word rebellion is only accurate in that it is a rebellion of individuals, once Christian in name, coming against the Christian faith. The reason I'm taking up so much time here to carefully define this word is that there are those that say that this, quote, falling away, unquote, that Paul wrote of is actually the rapture of the church. They incorrectly believe the Apostle Paul is talking about the departure of the church from the earth instead of the departure of many in the church from the faith and truth. This, however, is a misuse of the word and it would be a unique use of the word in the entire Bible. Being secretly taken away by a third party is a long way from an individual falling away or departing from the truth or rebelling. This interpretation is particularly absurd when you consider that Paul is saying in the same passage that the rapture, or as he put it, our gathering together unto him, will not occur until there comes a falling away first. The pre-tribulation theory would have us interpret and paraphrase what Paul is saying like this. The rapture will not take place until the rapture first takes place. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Secondly, Paul ties the falling away from the faith directly to the revealing of the Antichrist. In other words, according to Paul, a falling away from the faith and the revealing of the Antichrist must first take place before followers of Christ will be gathered or raptured to Jesus. Paul uses strong language as if to say, make no mistake, like I told you before, 
you won't miss the second coming because there are two obvious things that will happen before it, the falling away and the revealing of the Antichrist. To further make the case that this particular falling away that Paul's talking about is a specific event in the future and not just an ongoing trend through history, the word apostasy, as used in 2 Thessalonians 2, has the definite article with it, like the as opposed to a or a when referring to a thing. It's a particular thing. That's the definite article. It's not just any falling away throughout history. It is the falling away. It's a specific, definitive event. It's no coincidence that it's mentioned in conjunction with another specific, identifiable event, the revealing of the Antichrist. The Second Thessalonians passage refers to the Antichrist in this way. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. We'll soon see this son of perdition referred to by Jesus in the next couple of verses in Matthew 24. The time of the apostasy, or falling away from the faith, will be the time for many who have been Christians in name only to decide what side of the fence they're on. According to the book of Revelation, the Antichrist will cause all people to take his, quote, mark, unquote, in order to buy, sell, or trade. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. People will also have the option of either worshiping the Antichrist or dying. You can read about that in chapter 13, verse 15. Of course, worshiping the Antichrist is not an acceptable option for the true follower of Jesus. The price of taking the mark and aligning yourself with the Antichrist is eternal damnation. I have previously mentioned other Antichrists that have lived in the past. This won't be the first time this sort of definitive forced decision-making process regarding one's faith at the hand of a powerful world leader will have taken place. In 168 BC, the Greek Seleucid leader Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who's thought of by many to be a foreshadow of the future Antichrist, caused the Jews to choose his ways or die. To choose his ways meant denying God and defiling themselves, by, among many other things, making sacrifices to false gods. Many Jews were agreeable to doing so in order to save their lives. Likewise, in the Roman Empire in the first two centuries after Christ ascended into heaven, when certain Caesars were in power, faith-based tests of allegiance were administered. When it was discovered that someone might be a Christian, he or she was questioned about their faith after they were advised that there was a death penalty for being a Christian. If she or he denied their faith as proof of their claim, they were asked to make a sacrifice to a false god, or to Caesar, who is a false god. Again, many chose to save their lives by making this sacrifice. What does the Bible say about denying your faith? Well, in Matthew 10, verses 32 to 33, it says this, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him I will confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him I will also deny before my Father which is in heaven. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 we read, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. 
And in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 to 26, it says this, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? As we've seen, there will be those who fall away from the faith. How do we reconcile this with the doctrine of once saved, always saved? There will be those who say they are Christians beforehand that will take the infamous, quote, mark of the beast, quote, spoken of in the book of Revelation, in order to save either their lives or the lives of their children or other loved ones. They will have believed or at least said that they believed that Jesus was real and he rose from the dead. They will have even prayed the sinner's prayer, probably baptized, but in the end, they'll deny Christ by taking the Antichrist mark instead of trusting God's word and patiently enduring till the end, even if it would have meant dying. Is falling away from the faith the same as one losing their salvation? By taking the mark of the beast or worshiping him or aligning with him, even though someone prayed the sinner's prayer, and in light of God's grace, are they destined for the lake of fire? Is this saying that you can lose your salvation? Absolutely not. It's not a question of whether or not someone can lose his or her eternal life. The very words eternal life mean just that. How do you lose an eternal life? How can eternal be conditional? If it is conditional, you can lose it. It never really was eternal. Thank God that we are saved by His grace because of what Jesus did for us once and for all. When He saves us, it's a done deal, eternally. No, it's not a question of whether one can lose one's salvation. It's a question of whether or not one was ever saved in the first place. God is the only judge of this. He is the one who searches hearts and minds. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's through this faith that we obtain God's gift of salvation by His grace and by God-given faith alone. There's nothing you or I can physically do to obtain this grace or to pay God back for it. Remember the parable of the sower we talked about earlier. The seeds that fell on the rocky soil were likened to a person who hears the word and immediately and joyfully accepts it. However, because that person has no solid foundation or root within himself concerning the faith, he or she endures for a while, professing to be a Christian. But when trouble and persecution come, like we're talking about, they fall away from the faith, even though they seem to know it's the truth. Falling away from the faith is as simple as illustrated in this parable. When discussing this issue with other believers, I've asked them, what's the simplest instructions we have in the Bible on how to become saved? The number one answer is found in the book of Romans where it says, that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans chapter 10 verse 9. 
This verse that's contained in the Apostle Paul's first century letter to the church in Rome contains a two-part procedure that leads to eternal life. Number one, confess with your mouth. And number two, believe in your heart. While many people have confessed with their mouths that Jesus is Lord for anyone present to hear, but believing in your heart is impossible for others to judge. Even having both confessed and believed, it will still come down to an understanding of what's actually meant to confess Jesus as Lord. It goes way beyond merely putting the syllables together, expelling some air and uttering the words as though it's a magical spell or formula that forces God Almighty's hand to save anyone who utters them. How many 21st century earth dwellers really understand the historical meaning of the word Lord? Have they ever really pondered the meaning of the commitment they are making when they utter the words? Have those who are making disciples appropriately educated their potential proselytes about the commitment behind the words they're saying. The Greek word used for Lord is kurios. It means supreme in authority or controller. This particular word is translated in the King James Version of the New Testament as God, Lord, Master, and Sir. When we confess Jesus as Lord, We're asking Him to be, and agreeing that He will be forevermore, the supreme authority and controller in our lives as our God and our Master. We are saying, not my will, Lord, but Your will be done in my life. God knows when we understand the complete meaning and ramification behind the words we say when we name the name of Jesus as our Lord. It's at that point when Jesus uses the blood that he has already shed to purchase us out of slavery to sin and this world and make us his servant. That's the moment of eternal salvation when the seed was planted, takes root, and will not be blown away or uprooted. Many people believe that Jesus really walked the face of the earth 2,000 years ago and he did rise from the dead. They believe the facts as stated in the Bible. But then Satan believes the facts, doesn't he? See James chapter 2, verse 19 for that. Why then are not Satan and his minions saved, if that's all it takes? Well, the problem is, even though Satan knows these things about Jesus to be true, he has made himself his own Lord. Lucifer, being the Lord of his own life, shares the same fundamental problem with all of those who have never made Jesus the true Lord of their life. They believe the biblical facts with their minds and have spoken the words, but still remain the Lord of their own lives. People may even believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord, in the larger sense that they acknowledge His authority over everything. They'll confess this in every way, except for how they actually intend to lead their own life. This group of people may stand out as appearing to be very hypocritical. Some in this group will attempt to hide what they're doing. Others will at least be honest and say, I know I'm going to hell. They may be one of those who believe they're beyond God's help or reach because of what they've done in the past. Or they may be just knowingly and intentionally taking their own hell-bound path to spite God. Whatever the reason, understanding and acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and believing He was raised from the dead does not seem to get at the full meaning of Romans 10:9. You can't serve two masters, whether it's God and money or God in yourself. If you've chosen to follow Him, Jesus demands to be your Lord. Scripture does not say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus was real, 
but rather that Jesus is the absolute authority and controller in your life through being your Lord. None of this is to say that the true follower of Jesus, the one who has made Jesus his or her Lord, will have a life that looks perfect. Jesus does not purchase his followers out of slavery to the world and sin based on their qualifications or ability to follow orders. Thank God for that. He purchases them regardless of sin and character flaws. He purchases the low and high-functioning, the young and the old, the physically grossly deformed and the beautiful, the very weak and the very strong, the capable and the incapable, the bald and the hairy, the sick and the healthy, the intelligent and the illiterate. He also purchases the weak and strong-willed. He takes those he purchases, those bondservants who have truly made the decision to follow him, and he turns them into the new person that he wants them to be over time. They bring with them all the flaws and sin they had before. They may keep their flaws until the day they die, but as they lie dying, they're still resolved to follow their master, Jesus, who has long forgiven and forgotten their sins. It's those Christians in name only who have not made Jesus their Lord and Master, which will fall away from the faith during the tribulation and persecution of the end. They may have even attended church for 40 years and served on every committee known, but they won't have the God-given faith and strength needed to overcome. It's with these things in mind that I believe we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I get that from the book of Philippians 2, verse 12 where it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 doesn't mean that you're going to work out your own path to salvation. There is only one way, and that's through Jesus. This verse does not say, work for your salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is truly a gift from God. You can't earn it and will never deserve it. Likewise, the verse does not say, work off your salvation with fear and trembling. To try to pay God back for what his son did would just be a terrible insult to him. We can never pay him back. What the word is instructing us to do is to examine ourselves. In your mind, when you are completely honest with yourself, do you clearly have it resolved that you want His will to be done in your life over your own. In your mind, when you walk into the throne room of your own being, who do you see sitting there? Is it Jesus or is it you? You don't have anything to prove to any other human being in regards to these questions or this issue. It's God only that can judge you. No human knows the struggle of another human in this regard. What we do know is if you're someone who has been called by the Holy Spirit and you truly do make Jesus your Lord, that the Holy Spirit will literally take up residence inside you and make these questions much easier to answer. What about Peter? The Apostle Peter denied that he knew Jesus three times, yet Jesus took Peter back with open arms as though nothing happened. True story. I'm not suggesting that there should be no room for human failure and therefore the grace and forgiveness of God. After all, the spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. That's in Matthew 26, 41. Not to what-if history, 
But I have to say that if you were to ask Peter the same questions about Christ after the resurrection of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you would have most likely received a much different answer from him than when he originally denied Jesus. Now, having both the entire written word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and Satan being defeated by the risen Savior, life on earth after the cross is very different. It's those people who have heard the word of God, received it, but not made Jesus their Lord, who Jesus is talking about in his parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, 20 to 21. It's those same people who have heard the word, received it, but not made Jesus their Lord, who Jesus is talking about in his parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, 20 to 21. And it's those same people who have not made Jesus the final and absolute authority in their lives that will cry out to him in the end in the following manner. Jesus said, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in your name haven't we cast out devils? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That comes from Matthew seven twenty-one to 23 Serious words from Jesus to ponder. Persecution, the Antichrist, suffering, and betrayal. Where is the hope in all of this? If you've been elected by God and have been given faith by Him, there's no way you'll fail the test. In the hour of testing, it is His very own Holy Spirit that will take the test for you. The overcoming of any test or trial of the end of the age is completely reliant on Jesus, who's already overcome. It's a God-given gift of faith. If we are not in Him, if He is not truly our Lord, then we are on our own and will fail. Remember 2 Timothy 2.12, to refresh your memory. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, he also will deny us. What's amazing and gives us hope is what follows in the next verse. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. If we've been elected to salvation by God, once we are saved by God's great free gift, we are indwelled by his Holy Spirit, who cannot deny himself. By God's own power, he will overcome for us. This is absolutely incredible news. But when we would be found faithless on our own and not have the will to stand firm for Christ, He will remain faithful and not allow us to deny Him. Jesus said, To him that overcomes I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father on His throne. That's in Revelation chapter 3, 21. Sitting next to Jesus on his throne? Talk about hope. You can talk about all your extra rewards and that kind of thing, but I got to tell you that I would be thrilled with just groveling on the floor outside the door of the throne room. Jesus is the overcomer. Those who make him their Lord and are his possessions will overcome because he already overcame for us. Well, next time we're going to talk about false prophets, among other things. False prophets today are really rearing their ugly heads. 
Until then, thank you for listening. God bless and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.